Welcome to GPB's very first Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. Later in the show, I'll tell you more about what we hope to accomplish with this new experience. But first, let's talk about the music of Georgia. So what is on your playlist? No matter what genre you listen to, at some point you're going to hear something from a Georgia artist, like Macon's native son, Jason Aldean. Aldean has been touring all across the country. At his concert, though, near Chicago this past week, he was met with about two dozen protesters outside the venue, all over his song, Try That in a Small Town, which contains racist themes. On one hand, the country music industry has been working to be more inclusive, but on the other, racist rhetoric seems to be in demand. Try That in a Small Town currently resides at number 11 on the country airplay chart. I recently spoke about this with historian Charles Hughes of Rhodes College in Tennessee. Try That in a Small Town in one sense is very deeply reflective of a longer history. Uh, And in other ways, it is also reflective of a very recent history. The longer history is the use, not just in country music, but really in, in culture more broadly, of this idea of a divide between rural and urban as a way to suggest that those rural spaces are somehow better, are more peaceful, are more uh, upstanding, law-abiding. They are more good, (laughs) right, in every way. And that has often been connected very, very clearly, although usually, you know, through euphemism or through not direct language, that has been very deeply connected to a larger backlash politics uh, in which uh, white folks uh, will suggest that the problems of the big city uh, should never never be able to take over uh, in a small town. And if you try to bring those big city things to the small town, we will deal with you uh, as necessary, even if that means going outside the law. And of course, that's a rhetoric that was used to bolster lynching. That was a rhetoric that was used to bolster uh, segregation and the backlash to Brown versus Board of Education and the civil rights movement. And it is a really vicious and longstanding kind of politics that Aldine's song, and particularly the, the, the video with those images, uh, is tapping into. And I think that's one of the reasons why it gains such an immediate uh, backlash from people who recognize that this rhetoric of violence is not just uh, directed generally, but has a very specific historical uh, resonance and a very specific connection to the longer uh, politics of white supremacy, culturally and otherwise. But it also has this very specific historical resonance in this moment, Um, the way in which he is using rhetoric about cussing out the police, the way in which he's talking about how, oh, you know, the the, the people don't take care of the of the good people and they're letting these people run rampant. When you pair that kind of language with the images in the video, especially, um, this is absolutely coming out of a post uh, Black Lives Matter, George Floyd moment. It is a essentially responding to the upswing and upsurge in social protests that had to do specifically with racial justice, uh, most obviously in the aftermath of the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, but more generally this era in which Black Lives Matter has returned these questions of uh, police brutality and of systemic violence to the center. And those protest movements so often being associated with major cities although they happened in plenty of small towns too. I'm from a small town in Wisconsin that had its own protests after the killing of George Floyd. Um, The association of those protests with this kind of disorder or violence or the resistance politics that go along with it, uh, that is a very specific kind of historical statement. 
And one of the reasons why we thought it was so important to have this conversation is because there are a lot of uh, younger people, younger generations that don't Mm -hmm. really know the history of that and why it was so that song is so chilling and the video is so chilling. One of the images from the video takes place in uh, where you are in Tennessee. It's in uh, Columbia. Mm -hmm. It's that uh, Maury County Courthouse building where that was the site of just a horrific lynching. There's there's so much uh, threaded into this particular uh, piece of music and video. Absolutely. And, you know, the the use of that courthouse, you know, Aldine may not know that history. In fact, he probably doesn't based on what he's talked about. I don't think he has a very good understanding mm-hmm. of history of any sort, particularly as it relates to this stuff. But it doesn't really matter if it was intentional or not, because it sends a very clear message. And there are going to be plenty of people in Maury County or elsewhere who do know what happened happened at that courthouse. And more broadly, the way that it, again, reaffirms the association of this song with a tradition of taking the law into your own hands to supposedly protect the people who are not protected by the regular actual law. You know, one of the major justifications for lynching and for racial violence more generally that was used over and over and over again during the Reconstruction era and beyond and is still brought up today when we have these incidents, uh, these murders, right, and these attacks on black communities, you constantly hear people say, and it was, again, a center piece of the rhetoric of the of the Jim Crow era that, oh, we need to do this because here in a small town, we're not protected by the law and we need to take the law in our own hands because otherwise these bad people will uh, be able to just run roughshod. You know, this is the rhetoric of the Ku Klux Klan. This is the rhetoric of birth of a nation. This is the rhetoric of of any number of different uh, acts of racial terrorism and the way that they were connected to a broader politics of white backlash that, again, went on for decades and continues to resonate and has, in a sense, I think, returned uh, with a vengeance in the last few years. Um, So absolutely, that image is so powerful and it connects again to this specific incident and also to the broader practice uh, that try that in a small town is directly advocating for. You know, I always say when I talk about this, like the real irony of try that in a small town mm-hmm. is that Aldine is talking about how we need to basically break the law in order to enforce the law, mm-hmm. right? And that is ironic, but it's also, again, a standard line that is used like, oh, we can't count on the law to protect us. It's protecting the wrong people. Uh, but if they try to do that here, uh, then we'll do what needs doing, including use violence against them. Mm-hmm. So recently, another song, Rich Men North of Richmond by Oliver mm-hmm. Anthony uh, Music, that took off uh, with m- many conservative listeners enjoying that song. It addresses uh, class-based concerns like being underpaid, overworked, overtaxed, but it also evokes uh, this Reagan-era idea of uh, quote-unquote welfare queens. And this song uh, was also played in the opening to the Republican presidential debate, uh, which the artist denounced. And, And there's just a long history of country musicians advocating for the working class. But how do ideas like welfare queens versus the rural working class, how does that play out in country music? 
Yeah, I mean, there have been anti-welfare songs in country music, uh, particularly in periods where the music was most connected to conservative politics. So in the late 60s and early 70s, for example, uh, you know, the most famous or infamous of these is a song called Welfare Cadillac, which is a really (laughs) awful kind of novelty song that, you know, made many fans, including Richard Nixon, really liked it. Um, And then you have had this this kind of narrative throughout. Sometimes it's connected to just a broader advocacy for the working class, which is very complicated, doesn't make it acceptable to demonize people on welfare, but sometimes it can be more nuanced. But then with something like this, I mean, yeah, it is absolutely reiterating a Reagan era uh, stereotype about welfare users that is not only wrong, <laughs> deeply inaccurate, uh, but it is it is racist, it is misogynist. Uh, the ugliness of that Oliver Anthony lyric is what really, when I first heard that song, you know, he's talking initially about how folks don't make enough money for the work they do and, mm-hmm. and rich folks don't care about them. And I thought, okay, you know, I can, I could, I could be down with this, certainly. <laughs> But then as soon as he starts in on this, I just thought this is a really terrible, mean, ugly song that is actually not only punching down, but punching down in a very specific uh, direction. And, you know, I appreciate Anthony saying, oh, I'm not, you know, I don't assume I'm conservative because of this. But the fact is, is that he's a creation. The success of the song is a creation of right wing media figures, uh, people like Matt Walsh and others. Um, and he has seemingly been quite happy to accept their praise. Uh, so I think he, while I hope that Oliver Anthony will uh, will listen to the criticisms that have been levied towards him and will demonstrate this supposed claim that he makes that he's not uh, this kind of person, mm-hmm. the song itself and particularly that welfare line, uh, not only puts him in a very uh, specific political tradition of conservatism, but in a really, really ugly and mean one. Uh, The other things in that song get drowned out for me and for a lot of people by the way in which he does this and and the glee that he seems to take in that lyric, which is just... That's awful. It's mm-hmm. awful. Mm-hmm. But I do always like to talk about it. Anytime I get a chance to talk about what's happening in country music right now is that it is, in fact, a really wonderful moment just generally about, you know, a lot of people making great country music of various different kinds from pop country to Americana to traditional country to whatever in between. Um, but it is also specifically a really wonderful moment for Uh, artists who in previous eras would have been marginalized or would have been very difficult to hear what they're doing uh, thanks to the digital age and thanks to social media and thanks to streaming are able to gain a voice and and find listeners. So it's actually an incredible time in terms of black artists, brown artists, queer artists, folks who, again, have been shut out of the traditional um, understandings of country music. Uh, They've always made country music, right? Black folks, brown folks, others have always made it and loved it. But it's a chance now, thanks to these new systems, to get a chance to hear all of these great folks. There's organizations like the Black Opry uh, or mm-hmm. um, others that are doing not just work to try to bring light to these artists, but are also building networks around which uh, they can have success and autonomy and collaboration without having to worry about or deal with uh, the uh, an industry that continues to have far more interest in propping up, uh, you know, the racist and transphobic sentiments of someone like Jason Aldean uh, than it does in spotlighting what they're doing, uh, even though a lot of them are making incredible music that's just as mainstream sounding as anything that you will hear on country radio. Mm-hmm. And it's still a long way to go with that. 
uh, and it, the, the the mainstream needs to change. Yeah, um, but I love the fact I love the fact that now in this era we get to hear so many of these artists because they're on social media and Spotify and Bandcamp and these other places. Yes, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Charles, for sharing all your thoughts. We so appreciate you. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. There are dozens of music festivals that are happening all over Georgia, including the Country Music Festival that just happened earlier this month in Marietta. In Atlanta, the famous Music Midtown Festival returns this year. Ahead, we're going to talk about that. I'm Leah Fleming, and this is Georgia in Play on GPB. Welcome back to Georgia in Play. So let's talk right now about music festivals. I remember the first one I attended. It was the Essence Music Festival in New Orleans. It was in the 90s. It was very organic, very small. Well, now the festival is a big, big business. Within the last decade, music festivals have grown into major moneymakers all over the country. From Coachella to Lollapalooza, there is so much music to enjoy But those uh, actual events come with a lot of money. They come with a huge price tag to attend those those very flashy festivals. Here in Georgia, there are several festivals with a much smaller price tag, and they are just as great to attend. One of the biggest is happening in Atlanta. It's called Music Midtown, and the festival is taking place this weekend at Piedmont Park. Here to talk about the festival is GPB's digital editor, Christy York-Wooten, And she has reported on the music scene in Georgia for many years and attended the very first Music Midtown. It was in 1994. Hi, Christy. Hi. Thank you, Leah. So this um, first year had all kinds of artists that were performing. Uh, Do you remember? Tell us what you remember. So one of the things that drew me as a journalist to attending that first year at Music Midtown, I was writing for Creative Loafing at the time, Ed was the variety of artists that they show. It, you had California festivals doing this for a while, but in the southeastern United States, you didn't really have these larger festivals that were combining different genres of music that appealed to different audiences. So you could see James Brown and Al Green and South African trumpeter Hugh Masekela on the same bill as these up-and-coming Britpop acts like James and Texas. So that's what made it exciting for me. And, of course, you start checking off your bucket list at that point as well. (laughs) So James Brown, check. Al Green, check. Oh, my gosh. James Brown and Al Green. (laughs) Right. Not together on the same stage. I remember a little bit of hectic jogging between stages to make sure you got to see all the icons. But, yes. Yeah. And what was the vibe like? The vibe was really neat. I actually saw some pictures online the other day of folks enjoying that first music midtown. It was a lot more casual than the ones today. There weren't a lot of barriers. It was a grassy knoll on 10th Street near where the Federal Reserve Bank is today in Atlanta. So that whole piece of land kind of had a little bit of a plateau. You could see the sunset on the city, not directly, but it it definitely had a vibe. Mm. All right, so this year's festival is bringing uh, so many artists like Billie Eilish. Uh, Pink is also performing, and you were telling me that Pink actually has a connection to Georgia. That's true. She is is connected to the Atlanta music scene and and has been for a while, although she doesn't live here. Uh, She did uh, release her first album, Can't Take Me Home, in 2000, and that was on LaFace Records with Babyface and L.A. Reid. So she remained connected to the scene since then, and she's a huge international star. So it's exciting to have her here, um, not only for a show, but an outdoor show. 
And uh, Peter Conlon, who is the president of Live Nation and who was interviewed by the AJC, said that he hopes that Pink is able to recreate her famous acrobatic routine that she does inside the arena. So they're trying to work out the logistics. So we may see zip lines above our heads in Piedmont Park. Not sure about that yet, but it would be exciting to have that happen. Yeah, and hopefully her daughter will perform with her. Oh, you know? that would be great. <laughs> that would be great. So Atlanta's own rapper, Lil Baby, he will also be performing. And I want you to hear some of his music. This is his song, Go Hard. I'm shutting down my heart again. No one can get next to me, so they gotta put hearts in. Try my best to act like I didn't care, but I can't hold it in. And I'm not in the losing, I go hard as I can go to win. I'm back going hard again. I'm shutting down my heart. All right, that is so Atlanta, and that is Lil Baby. And just so you can hear the wide range of music that will be at this festival, and just simply because I love the song so much, here is Guns N' Roses. All right, that is Guns N' Roses, and that is their song, uh, Welcome to the Jungle. So, uh, Christy, this is what I think makes festivals so interesting today, that wide breadth of music. Absolutely, and and not only a genre, but the but the audiences that they appeal to. So, for example, Guns N' Roses, Gen X, rock and roll. You've got 1975 coming, and the heartthrob of Europe. I mean, Maddie Healy, the lead singer, has, you know, a huge following. And then, of course, Billie Eilish, who has uh, not necessarily any specific connections to Atlanta other than a huge fan base here. And she started out with her first show at Terminal West here Mm -hmm. a few years back with a couple of hundred uh, fans in the audience. And now this will be her third appearance at Music Midtown. Yeah. And she's only 21. Wow. (laughs) She's young. So there are so many music festivals around Georgia. The Savannah Music Festival, I think that is the largest one in Georgia still. Uh, The Savannah Jazz Festival, One Music Fest, and... The Blind Willie McTell Music Festival, that's in Thompson, and Brad Jam in Macon, which I've actually been to. Um, you know, there's there's so many uh, festivals all around the state. Georgia has, uh, Georgia is really in play so much with music. What is it about this state and what is it about Georgia that makes us so cool musically? I think there's a few factors. One is that Georgia has had a very strong music industry for a long time with the hip hop and even before that. But also the state's music history with folks like Little Richard and the Allman Brothers coming from Macon. Savannah has its own music history. Uh, Of course, across the Southeast, jazz and jazz festivals are very popular. But I really think it comes down to the music fans here. Uh, We've got the great weather mostly for good outdoor festivals and um, year-round events. And I think music fans in Atlanta are known around the world for being just great audiences. And I think that's why you get artists repeating and coming back and back and back again. Someone like, even like Billie Eilish, who's who's back again, probably for the fourth or fifth time to town, but third time at Music Midtown. So I think that, that Georgia music fans are known for being great audiences. Yeah, yeah. All right. Christy Wooten is GPB's digital editor. Thank you so much, Christy, for stopping by. Thank you, Leah.
It's Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. Georgia has a long and rich history of music greats. Today, there are some up-and-coming artists that are standing on the shoulders of those greats and are making music all on their own. Jeremy Powell is watching the scene. He is the host of GPB's Peach Jam podcast, and he joins me in studio to talk. Hey, Jeremy. I, I love to talk about this. It's it's my favorite thing, so it's, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. So if I say Macon, then we're talking music. You automatically think about Otis Redding. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about the Allman Brothers. So where are people making great music in Georgia today that comes to your mind? Atlanta is very important to the music scene nationally, internationally, and mm-hmm. locally. Mm-hmm. But there is music, great music in Georgia all over. I've talked to musicians from Rome, Georgia, from Ringgold. I've talked to them from Albany, Savannah, all over the place. And the music industry has changed to where you don't have to go to a big studio to record quality stuff. Mm-hmm. You can do it at home. The technology's there, the ability's there, and the way to put it out and market it is there. And so there really is great music everywhere. Everywhere in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And you know, another way to put it out is through podcasts. Very much. And you have been doing that over the past year. Yes. So Peace Jam Podcast is season one, came out uh, back in the spring. Mm -hmm. And season two is, is coming out soon. And I've been able to like find these musicians and artists who are smaller. They're working musicians. Some of them have full-time jobs, and, and music is their hobby. It's their thing. It's what they do. Some of them are working musicians where that is their income. Mm-hmm. And I've been able to find them, whether through recommendations or just Googling and looking at, at Facebook and, and seeing what I can find. And there is just a wealth mm-hmm. of talent everywhere and it's all kinds of sounds it's rap it's gospel it's blues it's rock and roll it's punk it it really really spans the spectrum of music mm-hmm. and it's been so impressive to find some of these artists yeah yeah so let's talk about some of the artists that you have been watching we're going to go to Columbus and you're going to tell us about Lloyd Buchanan before you do I want our audience to hear some of him Oh, I love this. It is going to be all right. <laughs> Lloyd is great. He was such a nice guy to talk to. I really enjoyed the conversation with him because with the Peace Jam podcast, it's not just the music, it's the conversations and getting to know these artists. And Lloyd is based there in Columbus. He's a local music minister at his church, and he's also the in-demand rock and roll organist and keyboardist. There are bands coming from overseas to record with Lloyd and his band. He travels with Alabama Shakes and Brittany Howard, who's the lead singer of Alabama Shakes. He travels with both of them. He's And people don't know, he's just Lloyd from church. And he's one of the single most talented people that we've had on the podcast. He brought a Leslie cabinet, a 1962 Leslie cabinet, and that's the thing that has the spinning speaker that makes the Hammond organ really sound like a Hammond organ. He brought one of those with him, and we recorded in our TV studios that are here in Midtown Atlanta, and he took us to church, (laughs) just took us to church. He was so great. Oh, goodness. You have another artist that 
also we should be watching. It is. It, it's the same type of thing. So Ryan Oyer mm-hmm. is from Ringgold, and let's hear some of him. Got a name that says Ryan has a great singer-songwriter sound to him. Mm-hmm. He's very, very talented. He works full-time in the carpet industry in Northwest Georgia. And then he sings on the weekend in hotel lobbies. He pressed his last album on vinyl, and he recorded the entire thing on his iPhone. So it goes back to you don't need a record label and you don't need a big recording studio. And you know what? That is the sound of Georgia. Mm-hmm. He's, he's bringing that sound. You know, there are so many major acts that have come through Georgia, especially this summer, especially through Atlanta, uh, Beyonce and Taylor. Mm-hmm. You know, we had those huge acts uh, and they came with huge price tags to attend. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking, you know, if you don't want to do that, why not enjoy music you know, by going and, and experiencing it this way. And it, it's it's a rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. So every time that I find somebody, I find somebody else, and I find somebody else, and I find somebody else. And I've become huge fans of some of the people who have been on the Peace Jam podcast. I interviewed a guy named Eddie Ninevolt and ended up driving to Macon to see him at Grant's Lounge. Oh, my gosh. And I love it, Grant's Lounge. It's so great, right? It's historic. <laughs> it is. And he is incredible. Mm-hmm. When he, he was a part of season one of the podcast, mm-hmm. When he was on, he had the number one record on the Billboard Blues charts. He's a kid from McDonough. Who would have thought? Oh, my God. Right? I was upstairs. So my office is upstairs from where we are right now. And they were doing some ceiling work. And there were some contractors in working on stuff. And they were talking about music. And one of the guys suggested you ought to look up the Ain't Sisters. They're from Decatur. Well, I looked them up. They're amazing. They were a part of season one. And it was a recommendation from one of the guys fixing the ceiling. <laughs> I just love the rabbit holes and I love who knows who. I ended up going to see the Ain't Sisters playing in Decatur because they were incredible. <laughs> I love them. And so I've been able to discover this and that's what I want to do. I want to share that with, with other people that there is this wealth of talent out there And, yeah, you don't have to spend a mortgage payment to go to a good show. You can find it in your backyard at small little places. Yeah, yeah. Well, you remind us of that each and every time we tune in uh, to your podcast. And the new season is coming up soon. September 15th. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. We appreciate you coming by. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. The sounds of music just don't stop on Georgia in play. What do the Black Panther and Atlanta Symphony Orchestra have in common? We're going to tell you as we celebrate Classical Music Month. I'm Leah Fleming, and this is Georgia in Play. It's Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. Okay, everyone, do it with me right now. Take your left arm and cross your chest, followed by your right arm, forming an X, and say it with me now. Wakanda forever. Say it because Wakanda is taking over the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Black Panther, as you remember, is the 2018 box office smash hit. It's the American superhero film based on the Marvel Comics character of the same name. 
So how will this play out with a symphony orchestra? Well, joining me now to talk about that is Anthony Parther, a world-renowned conductor and bassoonist. He is currently music director and conductor of the San Bernardino Symphony Orchestra in California. He is also the guest conductor of the Atlanta, Atlanta Symphony Orchestra's performance of the Black Panther. Hi, Anthony. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. So set this up for us. How does this experience work? You know, it took about two weeks uh, to record all of the orchestral components um, for this incredible film score. But what the Atlanta Symphony has as far as the challenge is to rehearse this in two days and uh, and bring this every single note of the score together for the orchestra and the audience uh, to enjoy. So it's it's quite a challenge. Yeah, it's going to the film is actually or pieces of the film are going to be on a screen. Is that right? Actually, you will see it's it's as if you're at the movie theater. You're watching the entire film start to finish. The only difference is that you have the orchestra and all of the instruments there to perform the score live along with the film. Oh, it's like going to the movies all over again and seeing this. So tell us the music. Isn't it Wagner? I would say that this this score, um, which was written by Ludwig Göransson, um, it actually won the Oscar for Best uh, Score in 2019. And this is a really clever score. It uh, it uses elements of traditional symphonic film scoring. Um, there's a little bit of trap here and there, <laughs> and then you know it moves. Uh, it moves in between a lot of uh, genres, uh, really um, interestingly and very cleverly. And also, you hear a lot of uh, West African uh, traditional music intertwined uh, with, you know, with Western symphonic, uh, you know, sort of language. So it's it's a real hybrid score of a lot of different genres melded into one. Mm. So I would imagine that this is a way to draw in more diverse audiences to classical music and, and actually to the symphony. Is that right? I would say that this definitely has a lot more widespread appeal than perhaps, you know, other programs for sure. Mm -hmm. How did you first come to classical music? You know, I had a really strange um, sort of uh, pathway to music. Um, I was sitting in eighth grade math class. And, you know, I grew up in Virginia. Mm -hmm. um, I live in Los Angeles now. But um, I really wanted to go to King's Dominion, which was the big theme park, you know, in Richmond, Virginia, mm -hmm. uh, with all the roller coasters. And I heard over the intercom what all the members of the Lincoln Middle School Band report to the bus for their trip to King's Dominion. And I saw half the class get up in math class and grab all of these strange shaped musical instrument cases and bound out the door. So I was like, I've got to get in on this gig. So I went to the, uh, I opened up the dictionary and I saw the accordion and the accordion reminded me of, and now I'm starting to date myself, but the Lawrence Welk show, which my parents, <laughs> for some reason, watched the Lawrence Welk show. Uh -huh. and I thought that that was a little nerdy. So I went to the B section of the dictionary and I found the bassoon and I decided that was going to be my ticket. So I took my little dictionary to the middle school band director and I said, I, my name is Anthony Parther and I want to play the bassoon. And all these years later, I still have not been to King's Dominion. <laughs> but you play the bassoon. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was my start as I really, I got my start in music because I wanted to go on the, on the band trips. Mm. Yeah, those are fun. <laughs> So there have been a few surveys done talking about, you know, looking at statistics about conductors in U.S. orchestras. Um, and there was one I saw recently that said there are about 5.6 percent of orchestras in the United States that have a black conductor. I'm very surprised by even that number. Um, so I'm wondering, as as a black conductor, who have you looked up to for representation? 
You know, one of the first people um, that I ever saw on the podium was the late James DePriest when he took the stage with the New York Philharmonic all those years ago uh, at the invitation of the great Leonard Bernstein. And then the second person that I would say that I noticed was Michael Morgan, who back in the 80s and 90s became the assistant conductor of the Chicago Symphony, and then he spent many years, almost 30 years, as the director of the Oakland Symphony and also the Gateways Festival Orchestra. And the Gateways Festival Orchestra is an all-Black orchestra that meets every year of superstar Black players from all over North America. And uh, Michael Morgan passed a couple of years ago, and um, I had the great honor of succeeding Michael Morgan as the conductor of the Gateways Festival Orchestra. So those are two incredible conductors that I looked up to uh, coming into this industry and two of the only to have ever had a major profile uh, as a symphony orchestra conductor. Mm. So this is um, this performance that you will do. This is part of a film series with symphonies from what I've been reading. And you've done other projects like Star Wars, The Mandalorian and Fargo, to name a few. Is this an idea that you came up uh, with? And, and, and what is the draw? Well, you know, the the draw is that some films contain great music for orchestras to play, you know, um, and, and if, you, if you think about the very beginning of cinema, before there was even sound effects or dialogue, there was music and pictures. So mm -hmm. a concert of this nature uh, returns really cinema to its original format of, of picture and music. And I think that's really fascinating. And it's been a, a over the last, I guess, 10 to 15 years of these as this sort of concept has become more popular. Um, it's It's been a tremendous draw for uh, for tr for symphony orchestras um, as they've tried to find innovative ways to reach communities of people that may not uh, normally attend, uh, you know, a concert of Mozart, Beethoven and Bach. Right, right. Well, we've been speaking with Anthony Parnther, guest conductor for this weekend's Black Panther performance at the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in Atlanta. And we'd like to thank you so much, Anthony, for spending some time with us. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope to see everybody at the show. just heard from the ASO and now continuing with the theme of classical music, the celebration of classical music month that started in 1994 by President Bill Clinton, who said during his proclamation that it's important to preserve the legacies of great musicians and introduce this genre to new audiences. Joining me now to talk about the genre is my dear friend, John Lemley. He is the host of John Lemley's City Cafe on GPB. Hi, John. Thank you so much for having me. This is I've, I've been looking forward to talk, being with you and talking about classical music. Oh, this is a treat. So let's talk about the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. They are taking its audience to Wakanda with this weekend's performance of the Black Panther. Is this a sign of how classical music is evolving? It really is. Mm -hmm. Classical music has really sort of infiltrated our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. We don't have to try to find classical music. It's everywhere. But then again, it always has been. Growing up, 
uh, many decades ago, watching cartoons. The first time I heard the uh, aria, uh, the sextet from Lucia de Lammermoor, was thanks to the Three Stooges. Oh, right. And so cartoons, uh, comedy. Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Bugs Bunny. Oh, yeah. Bugs Bunny has done more for classical music mm-hmm. than any other rabbit on the planet. <laughs> uh, just, it's 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 really exciting to be able to just sort of sit back and wonder where classical music is going to pop up next. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of evolving and becoming uh, certainly more accessible, I think the number one album on the Billboard chart this past week, you were telling me that, it speaks to this whole idea. Uh, tell us about Illmatic. Yes, Nas has gotten together, uh, sort of reinvented his Illmatic album and did so at Lincoln Center in New York with the National Symphony Orchestra live on stage. It is one of the most exciting new albums uh, that has come out in the past several weeks. Now, there are a couple of different uh, billboard charts when it comes to classical music, but the one that Nas and the the NSO have landed on is considered the top, oh. and that uh, that album is number one on the charts this week. Uh, let's hear some of it. All right, Georgia is definitely in play when it comes to music, including classical music. What comes to mind for you when you think about pieces written about and uh, created in Georgia? There are a number, but the one that really pops to mind because it evokes the, the spirit of the place and the time, it's by Jennifer Higdon, mm-hmm. written back a couple of decades ago. It's called Cityscape. And in each movement, she depicts in music one aspect, one place in metro Atlanta. So there's uh, one where the the Chattahoochee River is meandering its way from the the northern mountains into the city. Another is one, as it should be, about Peachtree Street. (laughs) Let's hear some of that. Reminds me of some of the traffic I was in uh, on my way to talk <laughs> it with does you sound today. Like some of the traffic, right? <laughs> so this month, what if we listen to no other piece of classical music? What's the one piece that we have to hear? Oh my goodness, there are so many out there. Um, I hate to narrow one down, but I have to say, for me, mm-hmm. the composer Franz Josef Haydn has been a biggie since college for me, oh, and nice. there is. One particular uh, symphony that I uh, especially enjoy, and it really tells an amazing story. Um, is it's it the fourth movement of the Symphony Number no. Forty Five, and this is known as the Farewell Symphony. And in it, there are uh, detailed instructions that Haydn tells one player after another to leave the stage until only the first violinist remains. 
this movement opens like most any other classical symphony it was. Does, yeah. And the 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 part where they begin to disappear one player after the other mm-hmm. is toward the end of that. Okay, so that is something that we have got to listen to. John Lemley, you are the host of John Lemley's City Cafe, and that streams Tuesday through Thursday at 1 p.m. on our GPB Classical app. Just go to gpb.org to find it and more about that. We'd like to thank you so much for bringing us this culture. (laughs) The honor, the pleasure is all mine, and happy Classical Music Month. Coming up, we're going to tell you how a kid from Columbus became a famous music producer and a film storyteller. It all started with the drumline at his high school. This is Georgia in Play. Welcome back to Georgia in Play. NPR has been celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip-hop music. Well, so have we. While much of the genre was born in New York City, the South has something to say, too. Music producer Dallas Austin, along with his friend Jermaine Dupree, are making sure Atlanta's contributions to hip-hop are acknowledged. They are doing it through a new hip-hop experience at the Underground in Atlanta. Aside from music, Dallas Austin is also a storyteller who has produced two major motion pictures and was honored by the Macon Film Festival. I talked to him recently about this latest award in his role in entertainment. Hi, Dallas. Hey, how's it going? Hey, we are good. We're very good. And uh, it's it's great to spend some time with you to talk about this moment. Now, I know you receive, uh, you have received a lot of awards, but tell me how this one it feels. Is. Does it kind of feel like a, a full circle moment to receive it from, you know, Georgia? It, it You know what? This moment feels amazing because, um, you know, it took me 10 years to make Drumline. And every single day I was just kind of chopping down the blocks to, you know, running back and forth between Hollywood and Atlanta and wanted to make sure that the story was told in the right way. And, you know, so it was it wasn't an easy task, but it was worth it. I read that this movie Drumline was um, based on your story, based on your your story in Columbus, based on your relationship uh, with your, you know, your girlfriend prom date. Uh, who yep. many of us remember dearly, Kim Porter, uh, who passed away, oh, yeah. um, yep. who herself, in her own right, was um, a, a phenomenal actress and model, beautiful model. Yes. Um, so, yes. is, tell me about that, about your your uh, your story. Yes. How close is it to the the true story? I mean, it's me. It, the only thing that kind of changed was we took it from uh, high school to college. And so, so college will make it a bigger draw or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's the same high school story. Kim played, uh, we were in a marching band together at Columbus High, and we were both on the drum line. <laughs> and uh, she played she played bells, I played snare drum, and they were always just kind of trying to keep us apart, and we were always trying to be together, you know, like, <laughs> as our little squad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the whole, like, it, 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 the whole story is a Columbus High School story. So as you were saying, <laughs> you are from Columbus. You eventually moved to Atlanta and to get into music, the business of it. Yes. And there was this moment that you forced change as a kid. That story about um, you at the bus stop and your mother. Um, tell us about oh, yeah. that. Yeah, I was in Columbus and my brother and I, I asked my mom, you know, every Christmas I get a little keyboard, get me a bigger one. And you couldn't be in a real band unless you had a real keyboard, mm-hmm. you know. So my, my brother financed one for me for 1200 bucks for five years. Right? <laughs> and... We, uh, and that was my saving grace. And then one day he came in the room and he picked the keyboard up and threw it and broke it because I was ignoring him by cleaning up the room. And so I left. 
um, went to the Greyhound bus station and was like, okay, that's it. I'm out of here. This dude broke my keyboard. I can't be a big star. And so my mom comes around and she said, look, uh, I know you're stubborn. You're 13 years old. Uh, where are you going? So I'm going to Atlanta, still my Aunt Clara. I'm going to be a big producer. And she says, well, you know, I'll tell you what. Give it to tomorrow. No buses are going today. I know you're mad. <laughs> She's like, come back home. And when we went back home with her, and then the next day I got her. She said, if you still feel that way tomorrow, then, you know, let's sort it out then. So I got up the next day, looked at my keyboard again with the broken keys, and I was like, that's it. Now I went downstairs to her restaurant, took some little money out of the cash register, and went back to the bus station. And then she comes around and says, wait, what are you doing? Because it was walking distance from her restaurant. Mm -hmm. So what are you doing? I said, I'm going to Atlanta. I can't be a big producer down here. And she's like, you're that serious. I was like, I'm gone. I'm out of here. And so she goes, all right, well, if you're doing that. You're not leaving me. So give me some time to sell the restaurant. Give me six months to sell the restaurant. We'll move to Atlanta. I'll go with you. And that's how we got up here. She, we got to Old National Highway. The first stop we got to, the oh, first yeah. place we could get to to be Atlanta. <laughs> and we stopped right there. <laughs> And she started working at Poe Folks on Old National Highway. Mm -hmm. And I started going to Lakeshore and MD and, and the schools on the Old National. And from that point, you know, the, I got known as this 14-year-old keyboard playing kid that, you know, really could play well. And they started getting me to do studio sessions and things like that before I even turned 16. They would come pick me up and because um, I couldn't drive yet. So I would come back home and give the checks to my mom and be like, hey, look, I'm making some money. <laughs> you know? right. um, and then, so, but from that point, with the back of her, I knew, like, I could do anything from that point, because, you know, she was the, she was my my backpack at that point. And, you know, starting with uh, Joyce Irby and Dougie Fresh, when I was, like, 16 or 17, I put my first number two record out. And then from that point, it went into another back creation, and Boys and Men, and TLC. And then from that point, everything just started to, to roll. Wow. Uh, yeah. And you never look back. You know. Never look back. I'm still not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think about um, young people in Columbus and around the state, and there are so many uh, young people that are not going to get a chance to leave where they are. They just can't. Um, do you think that they can be great right where they are, though? I think it's hard to be great where you are if you don't have. It's easier than we had it because mm -hmm. now you can load up online and you have online and you can you know, put your music out on you know Spotify through our company or through other companies. But. It, you know, so that part is easier, but the actual environment is important, you know, and I think that that's why people, you know, whether they leave to go to New York to be models or leave to go to L.A. to be stars and now they come to Atlanta to be stars. You need a point, you need a, a place where it's embraced and it can flourish for you because people won't get a chance to even in being in those places. The line is tremendously long. Mm -hmm. So if you're out of whack and you're in Columbus or you're in Macon or somewhere, you would have to get another destination point um, of where so you can you know, be where it's actually happening at for the light to hit you, you know? Yeah, but I will agree with you. You can definitely do a lot more on social media, online. I mean, you can do a lot more yeah. than we could, you know? Oh, for sure. It's almost like today, you know, the ability to have all that at your fingertips mm -hmm. um, is a whole other story because I don't care for school or music or any or photography or, or any of that. Now you have it in your computer and at least you can, you know, activated or aggregated. What do you want your legacy to be at this moment? No, I just want to want to be able to say I laid out the roadmap uh, for everybody else to do it, that I contributed, contributed, you know, a significant amount to our music community and our entertainment community. And, you know, one thing about Atlanta is that we still remain community. Yeah. What do you want your legacy to be at this moment as you think about it? You know, we're we're starting to, um, you know, we're all aging. <laughs> 
You know, we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> no, I just want to want to be able to say I laid out the roadmap uh, for everybody else to do it. That I contributed contributed you know a significant amount to our music community and our entertainment community. And you know, one thing about Atlanta is that we still remain community. We still remain friends. Me and Jermaine, and me and Jazzy Faye, and me and you know whoever Tricky Stewart. All of us are still boys. We still like the country is on the way. We still somebody's birthday. We go to their house. You know, it's like we didn't lose that. And in New York and LA, you lose that. You lose that sense of community because of people blowing your head up and think you're thinking you're the best and the biggest. And then you know, and then you know you have no other community to bounce back off of when you start acting that way. So we've always just supported each other and. You know, I just want my legacy to 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 be that I, I I had a significant impact on changing our culture, changing our economy here. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and letting them know it could be done. We have been speaking with Dallas Austin. Thank you so much, Dallas, for spending some time with us. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. And finally, today I want to take a moment to celebrate the beginning of something new at GPB, and that is this show. Public radio was a large part of the soundtrack of my life as a kid growing up, thanks to my late mother who believed in lifelong learning. I didn't know at the time that one day I would work in public radio because the voices I heard back then were mostly from white men. But one day, a man by the name of Alan Shartok, a Jewish white man in Albany, New York, created a diversity initiative at WAMC Public Radio. He did that long before anyone else was doing it. I got in thanks to him. He understood, as I do, that public radio is better when we all gather to talk to one another. And that's what this show will do. I believe talk shows should be collaborations. You are part of that. We want to hear from you. What should we be talking about? What's happening in your neighborhood? Send us a note to askgip at gpb.org. And that's our show for today. You can listen at gpb.org or download the show on the GPB app. A special thanks goes out to our production team, Marilyn Ryan, Natalie Mendenhall, and Chase McGee, and our engineers, Victoria Evans-Cash and Buddha Lamb. We'll see you next Friday at 2. I'm Leah Fleming, and this is Georgia in Play.